everybody. Welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Dan and Bill. And today we're going to be discussing a kind of a different short story about uh, the post-apocalyptic world called Encased in Ancient Rind by a guy named R.A. Lafferty, which actually stands for Raphael Aloysius Lafferty. Now, how's that for a name? That's a pretty cool name, actually. Yeah, this is a dude who is, he suffers from a chronic level of under-publicity in terms of the general populace, but he is a, a an author who has been described by a lot of science fiction writers in particular as the best writer ever, which is pretty high praise for someone that the rest of the world doesn't even seem to recognize ever existed. Yeah, like people like Neil Gaiman, who, uh, uh, what was the graphic novel series he's famous for? Sandman. Sandman, yeah. Uh, Gaiman really, really liked Lafferty and actually said that he was the best short story writer in the world. Also said that his stories were unclassifiable, odd, and inimitable, and you knew you were reading a Lafferty story within a sentence. Well, and on that note, there was an editor early in his career who told him that your opening line or your opening moment had to be like really powerful. And so that's part of where that comes from, I assume, is that his... His opening paragraphs tend to grab you. It was a dark and stormy night. Yeah, there you go. Well, they they just did uh, a collection of his greatest hits, so to speak, just a few years ago. And as testament to how well regarded he is, there's something like 20 some odd stories in it. Gaiman writes the introduction to the entire thing. And every individual story was introduced by a different author who was impacted by Lafferty's work. And they just all sing his praises for his work in general. And then, of course, for the specific story that they have the responsibility for bringing to us. They're probably just looking for another Philip K. Dick to make a bunch of movies out of his short stories. Well, <laughs> that's an interesting thought because I think there's some of the stuff by Lafferty that probably could get done that way. But he's also, as a representative of that new wave of sci-fi, he certainly slips and slides very quickly into the the eclectic and the strange, and I think that it would be a real challenge to turn some of his stuff into uh, into cinematic entertainment that the world would understand or truly be entertained by. Uh, yeah, and I I'm pretty sure this story would also be kind of difficult to turn into <laughs> anything resembling a film. But um, yeah, this is a a world in which the like I said, it's post apocalyptic and it's very foggy. Before we get too far in, I should mention that Encased in Ancient Rind originally appeared in the Quark series, which is a series of science fiction short stories and poetry that were edited by Samuel L. Samuel R. Delaney and Marilyn Hacker. And this one appeared in the third volume, which was published in 1971. So, Bill, you want to kick us off with some of the characters in this one? There's there's not a lot as as we are accustomed to to saying at the beginning of these episodes. Basically, we've got five: uh, Harry Baldachin or Baldachin, uh, Clement Flood, Joan Struthio, who goes by her stage name because she's an actress named Sally Strumpet, um, Charles Broadman, and then late in the story, Sally marries after one of the um, interludes away, which will make sense as we talk more about this, and she comes back with her husband who is an unnamed aviator. So I have not given much detail about the characters because there really isn't a lot of, say, background as we would traditionally have it. They don't identify by ethnicities. They don't identify by uh, professions or occupations or anything like that. 
They are characters who are named, who are sitting around at the beginning of the story, talking in a what they call the mountaintop club, and it goes on from there. Well, they do actually refer to themselves as mentalists, which you know they never yes, really say what a mentalist is, but it, they sound kind of like you know, the Mensa Club or the geniuses of their time, and they make references to the fact that Sally, even though she's a, an actress, is also a mentalist and can do things like you know, figure out what day of the week it is in a hundred years from now. And they really seem to be like the geniuses of the age, or at least some various sort of deep philosophical thinkers. And they've created this little mountaintop club where they, they get together regularly. It's like a salon where they have these, you know, in-depth discussions about things. And so the thing they happen to be discussing today apparently is the end of the world. To, to set the stage just a little bit, they are, they're, they're talking about how they are sitting on top of a mountain thus the mountaintop club. They're inside of a building that is as sealed as science can make it against the uh, the pollutants that are all around them in the atmosphere. It's not like being down in the cities. There's wind ripping by and the whole bit. And yet they are sitting in a room where they can barely see one another across the table because the smog is so thick, because the pollution is so thick even indoors. And they describe how down in the cities... People have even given up on on picking up the dead. People are just like literally dying in the streets and being left for untold periods of time rotting in the streets. So immediately we get this relatively graphic and relatively stark and dark picture of the state of the world. Precisely. Yep. It's it's, it's pretty bad out there, folks. And uh, these people, even though they're very smart and they're at the top of a mountain, they're, they're wrapped up in their masks and they figure, well... Well, at least some of them figure, yep, we're all on our way out. We're all going to die. This is pretty much the end. Now, for some reason, uh, Sally mentions the fact that she's, well, Joan slash Sally. We'll call her Sally because that's what they call her throughout the entire book. But she, for some reason, decides to mention she's an infertile, and the rest of the group's like, well, well, so what, right? <laughs> no one's going to have kids anyway because not no one's going to be around in a few more years. And so everything is about as bleak as it can possibly be. Most of the uh, the initial conversation is just a characterization of this and in the expression of this, uh, you know, fatalistic, we're going to die. Although it's, I think it's, is it Charles and Sally who both say, ah, I don't know, don't write us off so soon. You know, we should actually plan to do this again. Although I don't think we can do it right away because, you know, some of us are sick. So they make a plan to meet up again a hundred years in the future. And you know, a couple of them are like, yeah, right, you idiot. Yeah, that's basically Harry, right? Harry's the yeah. real pessimist, right? He feels like crap. You know, he's got all these things going on with him, and he's he's convinced he's going to die. You know, Charles is looking at him and kind of describes him, says he's gained a bunch of weight, his flesh is getting all thick, his eyes are sunk in, his hands and his nose are swelling up, and Harry's like, yep, I'm, you know, this is all related to me getting ready to die. And Charles, in this kind of little weird optimistic point of view says, nope, these are, these are just changes. And, you know, we've seen other things happening to other animals out there in the environment, you know, and, and for some reason, Charles is like, yeah, this, this might not all be a bad thing. And he's the one that actually says, yeah, let's meet in a hundred years while the other, I think, uh, which is the other one? Clement. Clement is the other one who says, just let me drown in my phlegm. Yeah. They're, they're the big pessimists, well, the two yeah. pessimists of the group. Anyway, so Charles says, yep, let's meet again in 100 years. Harry and Clement, you know, think Charles is a, an idiot. And Sally's like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, she's 17 years old and pretty optimistic still, apparently. 
Well, and we could provide a little bit of omniscient narration ourselves here about the structure of the story. So the, the short story opens up with Lafferty as the narrator speaking directly to us and setting a little bit of the stage. And then we go into this vignette that is the exchange between these people on the mountaintop club or in the mountaintop club. And then as that scene comes to a close, so we shift from there into, again, this sort of omniscient narration, and it describes the changes that have transpired between that initial meeting that we are witness to and the next meeting that's 100 years off in the future. And, and in that 100 years, yes, the world is indeed changing. It's full of poison and carbon dioxide and oppressive heat. You got the oceans evaporating in a 20-mile-high cloud of mist that blocks out the sun, blocks out the stars. You know, blue sky is a complete memory at this point. The world is a stifling tropical rainforest. The plants have gotten huge. The animals have gotten huge. And uh, apparently, for some reason, they say that the mist has started blocking this harmful radiation that increases people's lifespans, and things are quote-unquote, incomparably aged and giantized and slow. And then in kind of an odd reference, uh, they talk about Sally noting some similarities to this, this new changing world from some very old texts that, you know, were familiar to her from the previous world where they talk about things like, you know, the, the age of the giants and back when people had super long lifespans and lived eight or 900 years, like, you know, Methuselah and, you know, biblical references, things like that. One of the adaptations that happens among the the wildlife is that well the, well the plants and the animals alike there are ele- there there are representatives among them that become carbon eaters and in the process they clean up the atmosphere of carbon overload and that is part of what prompts their spectacular growth so that yeah we've got ten foot turtles ten foot diameter turtles and you know, all the, everything, well, at least not not everything, but many things have become giant-sized. Yep, so here it is, a hundred years later, and lo and behold, the, the Mountaintop Club gets back together, and they kind of discuss, you know, even though, even though Harry and Clement thought they were going to be dead, they're not. So all four of them are still here, a hundred years later, still alive and ambulatory and full of cognition. And they start kind of commenting on, you know, what what the state of the world is today. And they miss things like colors and they miss weather patterns. Yeah, it's just a big steaming swamp, kind of like South Florida. (laughs) Without the hurricanes. But yeah, you're right. They they miss they they don't there's no color under they call this thing the canopy, this this twenty mile high cloud of mist. And underneath the canopy, it's just kind of, you know, as you would expect, it gets bright, it gets dark, there's no real color because there's no sun, just you know, light, periods of light and darkness, and there's no real weather patterns, there's no wind or rain or snow, just sort of this omnipresent, you know, gray mist everywhere and all the animals and plants in it. And although a lot of our life forms that we see or that are referenced have evolved in a variety of ways to continue to adapt to their new surroundings or to their changing surroundings, they retain some of those throwback or vestigial you know, traits like they can still perceive color, even though there's no color to really perceive. They can still sense different kinds of elements of, of the world, even though the world has changed. And it's a you know, just a recognition that as things change, we hold over some things and then maybe we catapult into a new reality afterward, but that that change is both rapid in some ways and slow in others. 
Yeah, and they don't really, I mean, it, it's assumed during the story that people, you know, humanity is changing as well in physical appearance. I mean, obviously, their longevity has increased. Here it is 100 years later, and they're still having their meetings. And they make references to other people in society that apparently have survived this collapse, that they're still industrialized and they're still putting out a bunch of CO2. And apparently, you know, in the current world, that's really not a problem because it's just CO2 everywhere. Sally, interestingly enough, who, if you remember from the beginning of the story, said she was infertile, now suddenly says, hey, I, I am fertile, I can have kids, and I'm actually going to get married to a guy who's an aviator, because apparently there are still people who, in this world, once in a while, climb into their some type of aircraft and fly up above the clouds, where they can still see the sun and the stars that are all still up there somewhere. And there are others, Harry and Clement among them, that this really just bothers. They, the, the idea of going above the canopy is disturbing to them, where they are so, I don't know, acclimated or they're so accustomed to or just complacent within the reality that they are in that they can't imagine, don't want to imagine what it might be like to see the sun again or to really like experience something beyond the reality that they have. And they get into this weird little discussion about wisdom. You've got Harry and Clement on one side saying that since we're so long-lived and everything is slowed down and we can take a lot of time to really think and ponder about things, this is making them wise, right? We're, we're increasing our wisdom. And you've got Charles and Sally on the other side saying, you know, hey, slowness and wisdom have nothing to do with each other. And pretty much you know, on this note, they, they agree to disagree. And eventually saying, well, you know what, let's go meet up in another hundred years and, and see what happens. So we've got another interlude, uh, that omniscient narration, and one of the specific creatures from prehistoric times that, that is discussed kind of in depth for, the, for the, this story in terms of how things are developed is the Balictherium, the, the, the giant horse. And it talks about how horses and dogs which um, the, the narrator doesn't really con conceive of or, or think of as like real creatures. They're, they're manufactured in some way. I think just because they're domesticated, that was, that was the, my, my read on it. I don't know what you thought of that, Dan. Uh, but they, the, the Balictherium, the horse becomes basically a giant horse. Yeah, basically what they're saying is, you know, things that we used to consider to be dinosaur-like creatures have now, they're, they're back, right? The dinosaurs are back and they have they're not the same dinosaurs as we used to have, but given the climate, given how things are working in this current world, which is kind of a throwback to you know, the previous hothouse you know, time periods of the Earth and geological age, you're getting the same type of creatures evolving, where, like you said, the, the horse and, and other lizard-like creatures that are starting to look like dinosaurs, and we're kind of back in the age or another age of dinosaurs. Yeah, the narrator even says at one point something along the lines of, I don't want to say that there was a brontosaur or that the brontosaurs came back, but basically the brontosaurs came back, you know, big flat-footed lizards that were enormous. And he also makes some references to the fact that, you know, in addition to the changes going on in the animals, you've got changes going on in society. You know, they've been so long, this is going on 200 years where they've been cut off from the sky. You know, things like astronomy are considered a pseudoscience. You know, things like stars are just known from ancient literature. And again, sadly, for some reason, it's Sally who's noting these things. Kind of, you get the idea that that these references to the previous world sound a whole lot like you know the ancient text she was talking about earlier. You know, things like stars and suns are referred to almost as legend or almost as myth nowadays. 
Well, we also learn pretty early on in this scene that her husband, who was introduced to us as an aviator, is still conducting flights up above the canopy, canopy, even though those are now outlawed. So he's actually in some ways like a, a fugitive or uh, whatever you'd call it, that, that because he, he routinely breaks that law about going up above and seeing what's beyond the sky or what's beyond the cloud cover. Yeah, and so it's 200 years later. The group's meeting again, and as, as you just mentioned, Sally's husband, Sally, brings her husband along. And Perry and Clement are they're quite disturbed by this. And they're like, why, why can't you just wait another 100 years? And Sally resp- responds with, hey, well, you know, who knows what might happen in 100 years? Harry, on the other hand, is like, how could anything possibly happen in 100 years? And you get this idea that clearly by now the whole perception of time and what can happen in certain time periods have completely changed, right? 100 years is now like a month. Right, and although we don't know anyone else's target age or pinpoint age at the beginning of the story other than Sally, who we learn is 17, the implication is that she is significantly younger. But we're not, we don't know if we're talking hundreds of years for the others or if we're talking you know, what we would think of as more of a normal human lifespan. But certainly by now, obviously, we've gone through two 100-year interludes on top of whatever age that they were. And so we see this growing difference between some of these older gentlemen, if you want to call them that, and, and Sally at least, but also also Charles. And as you just referenced, right, Sally, you know, Sally's husband, he's an aviator and still flies above the clouds. It's, it's illegal. And he makes reference to the fact that his craft is, is basically getting really old. It's 200-odd years old and can make maybe one last flight. You know, Sally kind of talks to him about how great it is to still go up above the clouds, even though it's illegal. You can still see things like, you know, rainbows and wind and sun. And, you know, Clement and Harry are kind of disturbed by all this. And they're, you know, they were disturbed the last time, 100 years ago. Now they're really disturbed. They know it's against the law to do this. It seems like it's almost against the law to even talk about such things. Right. They make they make reference to the idea that even mentioning that there was a world before this one is is almost against the law. It's like religious canon at this point. And it's I'm not really sure whether it's religion or law or how the two are intertwined, but Yeah, humanity not wanting to be reminded of what once was. Yeah, you get the the people saying, Oh, blue sky, that that never existed. That's that's heresy. If there ever was a blue sky, it was only for a really short period of time and it probably didn't happen anyway. So so go on about your life. Nothing to see here. One other detail to note is that when we meet this time, uh, Sally and her husband are physically much smaller than the rest of them. The rest of them have grown along, not necessarily on the same scale or scope as, as other life forms, but they've become increasingly ponderous and large. And, and there's a definite sense that Sally and her husband are not. And the, the only implication for this in terms of action is is just that they continue to fly above the canopy. Yeah, they make references to the fact that the the group kind of looks like Neanderthals now. They're just big and heavy and have craggy faces and they just get this whole impression that with all this age they've gotten very slow and like you said very ponderous and they can't do things very quickly and since the whole world has really slowed down there's really no reason to to act quickly on anything. As they continue to talk, all of a sudden, well, all of a sudden is probably the wrong way to phrase it, but guards begin to show up. Yeah, they make a little reference that, you know, during their conversation, you've got Clement, 
and you've got Harry that go off every so often by themselves, kind of discussing things in low tones. And apparently they're like, hey, we got this heretic. We, we better call the guards. And sure enough, the guards show up to basically arrest Sally and her husband for breaking the law. But the guards like Harry and Clement are, well, they're just, they're slow. They're ponderous. They, uh, they're described as turtles or turtle-like. And so it's really easy for Sally and her husband to dodge away from them. And they jump into their plane, which is called the Swift Wisdom, and they fly away. They did. They just escape laughing from them. Yeah, there is this little interlude just right before that happens where they you can see the distinct change in perceptions of the world between Sally, her husband, and the other one. Sally's husband basically says, look... For the last 200 years, we've been living in a prison. We're trapped on this planet. You can't see the sky. Like back before the this world girdling canopy was here, we, we could go into space. We could see the sun. We had all these things that, you know, that we could go to and the universe was at our fingertips. And now we're just all kind of locked under this cloud, as I said, like a prison. And he says, hey, what? why can't I have the, the short and happy life sin that I used to have? Even if it had, you know, hunger and disease and war and poverty, you know, it was still way better than just this kind of placid, tranquil existence that people are living underneath the cloud. We can only assume from everything that there is literally nothing above the cloud. No mountain peaks or anything else reach above it. Otherwise, we can assume that Sally and her husband, because they've always had the capacity to do so, would have just flown away and found some other place to be. But they keep having to come back down to ground. Um, although, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, you know, there's, there's that reference near the beginning of this scene that their their plane is only good for one more flight. So when they take off, the the future becomes uncertain. You know, the implication is that you know they'll run out of fuel and crash or something like that, or they will only be able to be airborne for so long, and then they'll have to come back down, and they will be stuck in this prison, you know, beneath the canopy forever after. So, so as you mentioned before, the guards show up, these two last flyers right there, who being much smaller and much nimbler than the, than the guards and everyone else, you know, probably because they've actually been flying. They've been up above the canopy, and they, the, the changes that are affecting everybody underneath haven't affected them as much. They still retain some you know, nimbleness. They still retain some flexibility, and they, they zip off. Jumping, they, they actually asked Charles Broadman to come with them, and he, right. he'd like to, but he can't because he just says he's, he's too big, he's too old, he's too slow. He can't evade the guards, so, so these two, Sally and her husband, escape. You know, they, they go down to their plane and to go up one last time above the clouds, and Harry and Clement say they're mad and say they're insane, and you know, Charles disagrees with them entirely. And the story ends with the phrase, Two tears ran down his heavy cheeks, but they ran very slowly, hardly an inch per minute. How should things move faster on the world under the canopy? So we have closure on the story, and we are left to reflect upon what we might take away from it. What do you think, Dan? Well, there's a bunch of different themes. It, one of the things that makes this a good story, right, is that there are a number of major themes. It's not just a, a one-shot deal. You've got you know, the idea of, you know, these vast ages of geologic time repeating themselves and the fact that evolution and biology help humans and plants and animals adapt to whatever the changing climate is. Certainly we see our share of doomsayers out there that, you know, climate is changing. 
we're all going to die. And this is oddly enough, one of these stories where they say, well, maybe we're not all going to die. We're just going to change into something else that lets us adapt to the climate. Now, you know, we're talking over, usually that's millions of years or hundreds of thousands instead of a few hundred, but you know, hey, it's, it's science fiction. But it is interesting that it's a story where where you've got a post-apocalyptic society that is not just, you know, Mad Max and people running around in deserts fighting over cans of gasoline or filled with zombies. <laughs> I find it interesting that in addition to having this very compressed sense of, of, of physical or biological evolution where we see changes in the world around us in terms of the plants and the animals and so on, but then we also see changes in the main characters, although they, you know, those changes occur at different paces in different characters. We also get to see some of the evolution of their emotion and of their intellect. Remember, these are the mentalists, the people who are considered to be, you know, at, at the at the top intellectually of the species at the beginning of the story. And yet by the end, or maybe because of that, by the end, some of them have become just completely subsumed, like they by by the well, by all of the changes. They're complacent. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's a combination of, of defeat and complacency where they just, they can't imagine or don't want to imagine or maybe even fear to imagine a different reality than the one that they are in or that, you know, they, they have just come to the point where that adaptation mindset says, you know, don't try to change anything. Don't try to deny what we have. Just continue to do, continue to live because that's what we have. But we see that evolution. Yeah, I did see that interesting as well. You've got, you know, Harry and, um, what's the other guy's name? For some reason, I can never Clement. Clement. Harry, Harry and Clement. Clement right there. They've both bought completely off on this society that they have nowadays. And even um, Harry, I think, makes some reference to the rainbows as, oh, that's just a myth, right? And this is theoretically a guy who's, you know, grew up in a world where there was winds and clouds and rainbows and storms and all this stuff. He knows they exist or existed, but now here it is 200 years later, and he's like, oh, those rainbow things, they're just a myth. So he's, you know, these two have completely changed their way of thinking. Yeah, and so we see adaptation happening in a variety of levels and layers within the story. And, and that, I think, is interesting because we often see in, in fiction stories where there's some sort of, of environmental cataclysm of some sort where governments step in and they either become supportive or oppressive. And although there's there's some implication here that, at least in treating aviation as a crime, that there's a little bit of that oppressive stuff going on, the government really isn't a focus here. We, you know, we, we get these individuals that are, that are focused on, and that isn't often the case in stories, at least in, in that dimension of the story. Yeah, in some ways it appears that whatever society they have left, right, has regressed in some ways. Obviously, you know, free speech is no longer allowed, right? They're not allowed to talk about the world before. They're not allowed to go look for evidence what the world was like before. We don't strictly know why, which is kind of why it smacks of a religious thing in my particular viewpoint. But, you know, you'd think that, well, apparently none of the technology or the records from the old world survived whatever the transition was. What about satellites? What about, you know, space-based telescopes? What about all these things we currently have that, you know, can no longer be referenced or thought about or in any way, shape, or form show that there's something above the canopy, right? They, they said, I think we mentioned astronomy is a pseudoscience and things like stars are just mythical. Well, you know, with the level of science that we have or even that we had back in you know, 1971, which is when the story was published, 
you know, the idea that all of it would have completely collapsed and, and disappeared and we're now left with this semi-primitive society that although they say it's industrialized, it's really hard to put a finger on what's going on inside the society. But it just seems like it's regressed in some ways we can't quite pinpoint. Yeah, and and although there is still industry, we have not seen, and the story doesn't doesn't like present to us any kind of technological ingenuity that has overcome the changes that have resulted in whatever contributions have have, have been made to this you know this this huge climate change we don't see technologies for trying to fight against the smog we don't see technologies that are going to consume the carbon it's biological factors like the animals and the plants that 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 consume the carbon within uh, within the atmosphere and i made reference to how you know the implication is that they can fly above the canopy in this plane but that there's nothing there's no land or there's no place to be above the canopy where remember at the beginning of the story the mountaintop club was above the canopy. Well, or at least it was near the top of the canopy was the implication of it because they still had wind. And even though it was still smoggy and foggy, it was not as bad as it was down in the cities. And now, of course, the canopy is much thicker. It 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 covers everything that we could possibly have. But there's, again, no no implication, no discussion of technologies for having a space station or colonizing the moon or even having, you know, some sort of technology that would allow people to rise above the canopy on a regular basis so that they could experience the sun still. No, we've given up on all of those kinds of things. As you said, it implies some sort of, well, if not regression. Can't win, don't try. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is, is, it, is it regression? Is it defeatism? Is it, um, you know, or some combination of all of those kinds of things? But we, we do not get a story about the human ingenuity overcoming all of these, all of these problems. No, we just kind of succumb to them. And apparently the technology at the time was pretty good because they say this canopy was 20 miles high. Well, right. <laughs> that's 100,000 feet, right? That's three times the, the altitude that airliners fly at and somehow these people have access to something that can go up basically into the stratosphere and see things you know above the canopy so not to nitpick but hey once in a while you have to and in a story where there's so much attention to the implications of science i mean it's one that that you know talks about not necessarily getting into atmospheric chemistry in a deep kind of way or anything like that but it's trying to present things as you know, the, the, this this problem has its roots and it makes reference to, you know, the, all of those things growing and then all of these changes that happen in um, in the life forms that we do know based on those atmospheric changes. So it's not trying to avoid science. It's not trying to avoid those kinds of, of topics of conversation. And yet, like you just said, yeah, it's kind of setting that stuff aside in a way. One of the impressions I get from the story and you know, for better or for worse, is at least some of these characters, going back to the one of the discussions throughout the story, is this idea that because we're living longer and because we're doing things slower, that somehow we're wiser creatures as a result. I mean, it's very clear that, that Clement and Harry think that, you know, we've got all this time to reflect on things, we can think about things, we're, you know, we can debate things much longer because we live much longer and we're, we're much better off as a society, as a result of all of these adaptations that have taken place. And that's something that seems to be 
somewhat common in literature, particularly fantasy literature, right? If you look at these long-lived characters like the Ents and Treebeard in The Fellowship of the Rings. The or the elves who are basically immortal. Yeah, the giants in the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. All these creatures that are, are considered to be big and old and slow and long-lived are always considered the really wise creatures. And correct me if I'm wrong, but if, I, if it takes me a long time to make a dumb decision, it's still a dumb decision, right? If I'm going to take all of my money and put it into you know, stuffed animals that represent Pokemon characters, whether I do that in a week or whether I do that in 10 years, it's still probably a pretty bad idea. Well, and it imagines that just because you have the time to reflect, that you actually will reflect and that reflection will make you wiser in some way, shape or form about the way the world works. You know, I find it interesting that all of the examples that we're giving so far, these are all characters or creatures from stories where it becomes natural or it becomes part of their natural adaptation is in the case of this to this longer lifespan. Whereas there are other examples in, in science fiction and other stories where people who elongate their lives by unnatural means or, or you know, by technological means, for example, or yeah, if you go into like fantasy and stuff like that, you know, people who use magic to extend their lifelines, they often go insane because the it, it becomes part of the staple of those kinds of stories that the human body is only designed to live so long. And if you push it beyond those limits, well, then you run the risk of having things like mental breakdowns happen. And and so I, I find that that kind of juxtaposition of insanity and wisdom in those different kinds of stories, like what's the what's the nature of or the origin of longer life? And then what is the quality of it based on that nature? Yeah, does it really help you? Like, as you said, well, one thing that's interesting is even though they say things are a lot slower, they keep making references to that. Right. The way they, the way the people think and the way they talk doesn't seem to have changed, that at least it's not mentioned in any significant way. So one kind of assumes that their, their thinking speed hasn't changed, the way they communicate hasn't changed. But, you know, again, the idea that more time gives you a, a better, well, it, it should give you a better option for making better decisions, but hey, it's not going to overcome your your cognitive biases. It's not going to overcome your logical fallacies. If you don't take any of that time to recognize and work on any of those things like confirmation bias and all these other things, if you don't work on any of those, then yeah, you're, 100 years of thinking about a bad idea is just as bad as one year of thinking about a bad idea. Yeah. How often do we hear about people who you know kind of get trapped in their own heads and that lack of perspective, you know, just keeps them from growing beyond the moment that they're in, being in, in inside their own little bubble. And yeah, so if you're thinking for 100 years inside of a bubble, it's probably not a good thing. It's actually probably worse because you've got 100 years to get those thought patterns ingrained in your head. Yeah, you made reference to the Ents you know, and, and the, the whole notion of the slow wisdom. You know, there's the scene in the the two towers where... Mary and Pippin are waiting and waiting and waiting to find out when the Ents are going to go to war to storm Isengard, and Treebeard comes back after several hours and basically says, well, we said good morning. Yeah, don't be hasty. And, uh, <laughs> don't be hasty. That's right. You know, when you look at this story about how it connects to other types of stories, it, it's got some themes that are referenced in other types of media and in other types of stories, especially things like atmospheric pollution and and apocalyptic type stories, you know, the day after tomorrow and various other things. There's references to the canonization of 
of storylines like we talked about in in old text sorry in old testament where you know bixby talks about how these events are canonized and written down and are now basically worshiped as fact regardless of what the actual facts may be so so there's although there are references and some similarities in other literature this story to me is i don't i can't think of a lot of one-to-one references for it no that's i was actually what i was going to say too is that there's there's common elements, but for example, you, know, you talk about the physical adaptations that are described in um, in this story. You compare that to something like you know Cymax desertion that we talked about earlier. You know that was a deliberate act of trying to transform the human body so that it could adapt to a new environment for the purpose of colonization or or you know at least industrialization. Um, and, and so stories like that. The transformation is all about that deliberate act, and it, and it has an outcome in mind. And in this case, it's just part of the evolutionary process. You know, and even if you go back to something like um, Ballard's Voices of Time, you know, there again, adaptations are happening, and they're being triggered by radiation, and you know, there, there's all these these um, these new physical traits that are showing up in animal life, and of course, in human beings as well. But again, it's a different kind of thing where, although that is also core to the story, it just, it plays out in a different way. And and so this story, Encased in Ancient Ryan, just really does stand off on its own. It, it's carved out its own little niche about how it's going to talk about this kind of stuff. And and it stays there, you know, and, and other people may be, like you said, comparable in some sort of way or may overlap rather in some sort of way. It, it really doesn't, like you said, there's no direct parallel. So if you want to look at this story on our wonderful whoa hmm, and what the fuck scale, what's uh, your first thought on this one? Well, I know my first reading of it, it was absolutely what the fuck. I was, <laughs> I, w- I was just kind of blown away by the by the oddness of everything in it. That's first impression. So I'm going to talk about that in a different way than I usually do. First impression, what the fuck. Lasting impressions, however, that part of it fades for me on further reading. You know, now I've been through this thing five or six times, and now it's much more of a hmm story for me than it is a what the fuck story for me. But I think from what I've read about Lafferty, he would approve of that, where he wants to throw you out of your preconceived notions of things with the way that a story is written and the way that he plays with language. But at the end of the day, he wants to, you know, hit you between the ears, so to speak, and make you think about something. Yeah, like Jason Key said, he doesn't make any sense until you decide, and you must decide that he does. Then suddenly he becomes a genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's that's basically the same thing you're describing, right? I mean, I, I similarly read the story, and I'm like, do we want to include this in the show? I have no idea what this is about, but... Then after you know analyzing it and breaking it down and looking at the storyline, I'm like, oh yeah, this now I get what he's trying to talk about, how these different themes interrelate. Like when you suggested this story and I read it, I thought I want to include this at some point because it's weird, and I like being able to throw weird science fiction stories into the mix for the stuff that we're doing here. But as the time actually came for us to do an episode over it, and so then that prompted those those return reads. It really did transform for me into a much deeper, much richer, and not necessarily less weird, but a more strategically weird story. So the takeaway, I think, is if you haven't read 
Ari Lafferty before, you should probably go out and lay your hands on some. Yeah, there's a lot of good anthologies, including a recent one like we made reference to that has introductions uh, from a number of, of, of authors who talk about why they like it. So if you need any prompting or you need any contextualization for the stories, those are good anthologies to grab. Yeah, I got one of uh, his stories or one of his books coming to me in the mail called Not to Mention Camels, and I can't wait to see what this is. I actually might go grab that, that collection myself. I should add the title into the, the show notes for you. And I'll, I'll say that I'll do that. Go check it there. Well, keeping with a sort of general theme of post-apocalyptic kind of stuff, because we've had a few things that are dealing with population now and pollution and so on, we're going we're, we're gonna to keep that theme rolling. Where are we turning next, Dan? So next time, we're going to look at A Pail of Air by Fritz Lieber. Why, may you ask, do you put air in a pail? Well, find out next time. Yeah, come on back to find out. Take care, everybody. Uh-huh.